The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. About a decade ago, I spent a couple of months living in Chicago for the trial... Uh, the show trial, actually, the show trial of my old boss, Conrad Black. I had uh, my delightful suite at the Intercontinental, the nice part, not the hideous modern bit, but the old part uh, where Johnny Weissmuller, Tarzan in the movies, uh, Johnny Weissmuller used to swim in the fabulous pool there. It's on Michigan Avenue, North Michigan Avenue. And after a day in court, I used to go next door to the Chicago Tribune building to go on the late Milt Rosenberg's wonderful radio show. Uh, but when you're living in some hotel, even a nice one, there's all kinds of things you need that you don't have to hand. So you're always popping out to the shops. And that stretch of North Michigan is known as the Magnificent Mile, because from me and the Wrigley Building down south to the Drake Hotel and the Lakefront, it's one magnificent emporium after another, plus great restaurants. The only thing Barack Obama and I have in common is that our favourite Chicago restaurant is Spiaggia, which is across from the Drake and where Conrad and I used to go for dinner after um, the uh, day's court proceedings. And we'd run into Michael Caine, who'd be in town filming his Alfred the Butler turn for the Batman movies. And uh, Michael and Shakira would uh, join us for a cocktail. Life is magnificent on the Magnificent Mile until two nights ago. I am the god of hellfire and I bring you fire. August 11th, 2020, the summer of stupid, the march of the morons. Sunday night and Monday night, uh, Chicago's Magnificent Mile has been the scene of, uh, oh, what's the phrase, mostly peaceful protests. Its most glittering stores have been smashed and looted, notwithstanding that they're all the wokest of, of wokiest brands who've spent the last two months advertising their solidarity with Black Lives Matter. And a fat lot of good it did them. Inventive mob stole uh, rather nice cars, Audis and the like, and then drove them through shop windows to access all the luxury goods inside. Uh, as I've said here for months and elsewhere for years, you measure a functioning society by how easily you can insulate yourself from its worst pathologies. In Chicago a decade ago, I was aware that the Magnificent Mile is not the whole story and that there were not so magnificent miles somewhere beyond the horizon. They have a sort of Gotham City uh, vibe in the Chicago Loop because they've got this double-decker and in places even triple-decker road system. Um, so you understand that if you descend to the lower or lowest level that everything's a bit darker and danker and gloomier and it seems to lend itself to uh, lurkers. But up on the magnificent mile the sun shines and life is good or it was until the weekend. Laurie Lightfoot, uh, who as somebody said <laughs> sounds like a mayor in a uh, third-rate DC comic book, 
interacting with Michael Caine as Alfred the butler. Uh, Laurie Lightfoot, uh, she is in fact the first black lesbian mayor of uh, Chicago, so she's unfireable. Uh, And she's been too busy tweeting her chastisement of muscular, oiled gay hunks in the tightest of speedos um, who were not observing social distancing while sunbathing and gambling and frolicking on Montrose Beach. A little uh, intra-rainbow coalition dispute uh, between the humorless black lesbian and the frolicking gay hunks. Um, But she was too busy with that to say a word about the looting of her city's downtown People are slow to change, too slow. That's why we're in the hell we're in uh, and our civilization is sliding off the cliff because uh, by the time people notice that it's sliding off the cliff, they're already off the cliff. Um, I mentioned on Tales for Our Time last night Ben Shapiro's catchphrase, facts don't care about your feelings. And the reality is that for most people, and certainly most progressives, their feelings don't care about your facts. Unless it's a fact you can't ignore, like a big smoking ruin where your downtown used to be. And then you start to notice that your cool black lesbian mayor is too busy threatening you for non-social distancing to deal with a mob minded to recreate the great Chicago fire. Uh, That's why, as I noted yesterday, the New York Times is frantically trying to close the stable door after the woke horse has bolted, uh, because if your goal is a Democrat sweep in November, this kind of thing isn't helpful. Joe Biden is a racist, mentally impaired sex predator. Uh, To be sure, Democrats reckon Trump is a racist, mentally impaired sex predator, so that may be a wash. And anyway, Democrats are the masters at overlooking. They're gold medal Olympians of overlooking. But it's a lot harder to overlook that it's increasingly unsafe to walk in daylight in the wealthiest boulevards of American cities, and that their Democrat mayors and administrators declined to do anything about that. The bifurcation of our society continues. For the mob, there are no laws. For you, there are ever more, including laws on whether or not you can leave your house and what you are obliged to wear if you do leave it. The new normal is getting old. You're still up in the air about whether schools should reopen next month? Ha! Australia's Northern Territory is way beyond that and has written off the whole of next year. Uh, They've said their borders will remain closed, closed to their fellow Australians. Their borders will remain closed until 2022 at least. Hey, why why stop there? Why not make it 2037 or 2048? Everybody's getting used to the permanent emergency. Good evening, all. It's your Brit Wanker Copper of the Day. Speaking of Oz's Northern Territory, we have a Commonwealth wanker copper for you today from south of the Northern Territory uh, in the racistly named state of Victoria. For the last week, it has been mandatory for everyone throughout the state to wear a mask when outdoors. Uh, Downtown Melbourne, middle of nowhere, makes no difference. If you can see the sun in the sky, 
uh, you are outside and you should be wearing a mask. You can't leave the house without wearing a mask. So in Collingwood, uh, which is a suburb of Melbourne, a police patrol espied a 21-year-old woman perambulating in public unmasked. And the lead copper got his hands round her neck and started trying to wrestle her to the ground. The female voice you'll hear here saying, let go of her, Ben, is a policewoman, the male officer's colleague, who presumably realises that this doesn't look good and might go full George Floyd. He get doesn't off. get off her. Let go of his vest. Let go of his He's choking me. He's choking me. What the f? Let go of his He keeps her hand, get his hands round her neck, get throws her to the ground. Get the f me. What are you doing? You just kicked me. You're choking me, dude. What the f? Get off the head. You're And gets on top of her. Yeah, but you're choking, you're choking her. As a man on a guy, as a man on a girl, as a man on a girl and you choked her. For what? For a mask? For not, for not having a mask? Look how pathetic you are. She doesn't have a mask. Are you serious? Are you serious just for not having a mask? Indeed, for not wearing a mask outdoors. Grabbed around the neck by police, a woman who wasn't wearing a mask. The force foot manoeuvre during a scuffle yesterday in Collingwood. This is the woman who was arrested. Police now agree she has a medical exemption. So she had a medical exemption from wearing a mask, but the copper grabbed her by the throat and wrestled her to the ground anyway. Oh, but there are mitigating circumstances. The woman is alleged to have flipped him the finger. Today's Brit wanker copper, not from the United Kingdom, but from Her Majesty's Constabulary in Victoria. I strongly dislike permanent emergencies, but at least after 9-11, the TSA were confined to America's god-awful airports rather than being free to grope your genitals on Fifth Avenue. With COVID-19, uh, we are going to be living with the TSAification of every aspect of life. off out of sunny Spain, apparently forever. King Juan Carlos, who stepped down from the throne uh, six years ago. I'm with Queen Elizabeth on this. I don't believe in abdication for monarchs for good or ill to die in harness is part of the definition of the job. But Juan Carlos quit six years ago in favour of his son and has now gone into what is called exile. Exile. Hard to believe that's still a thing in 2020, but apparently it is. He is variously said to be living in the Dominican Republic or Abu Dhabi, neither of which I would relish spending the rest of my life in. I have had some modest contact with the Spanish royal family over the years. I spent three very agreeable days at an international conference with Queen Sophia because the seating was alphabetical. So Stein, Mr. Mark, came right next to Spain, HM, the Queen of. And Queen Sophia was a delightful company and laughed at all of my jokes, sometimes so hard that her 
powder rose off her face and settled on my lapels. I'm glad to have made her happy. Her Majesty is said to be a somewhat put-upon woman, uh, and her husband's pursuit not just of money, but also of sexual diversion is what has brought him to this not-so-pretty pass. Our current tale for our time, as many of you will know, is a Ruritanian sequel, so I've been thinking of late of the fragility of royal dynasties, and Juan Carlos's is certainly more fragile today because of his behaviour in recent years. However, I feel sad about it, because for the best part of a decade he was Spain's indispensable man. He can rightly claim to be the father of modern Spain. Juan Carlos's grandfather was the last king before the Republic and then the Civil War, and General Franco, trying to figure out how to secure his regime in perpetuity, decided to skip a generation. Juan Carlos's father, the Count of Barcelona, and in 1969 designated Juan Carlos uh, as his successor because he thought the dad too liberal. Juan Carlos spent the early 70s standing behind Franco at state occasions and never betrayed any sign that he was a shrewd and canny political operator. But remarkably quickly, uh, actually within weeks of Franco's death in November 1975, he began uh, very subtly Spain's transition to democracy, knowing that he bore the full weight of responsibility if it all went haywire. There were multiple competing factions, Franco loyalists wedded to hardcore unchanging Franco policies, Franco loyalists who understood the jig was up and favoured such minimal reforms as they could get away with, other political forces willing to work with the king, other political forces who remained fiercely republican and indeed communist, an army protective of its privileges and status under the Generalissimo, a misstep here, a miscalculation there, and the whole thing could have fallen apart. And until the new 1978 constitution, Juan Carlos wasn't really a king. Um, he didn't reign by divine right by hereditary succession, but because Franco had given him the job. Um, knowing which Francoist to remove when, knowing uh, how to sideline a problematic minister by retiring him with a dukedom, all this Juan Carlos did quite brilliantly in those first years, and never more courageously than on February the 23rd, 1981, when he faced down an attempted military coup whose leaders had seized the parliament and he, in response, made a powerful television address in his uniform as Captain General of the Armed Forces, uh, not just rallying the nation, but through sheer personality and symbolism, uh, persuading the insurrectionists that their cause was doomed and they'd lost. Santiago Carrillo, the old-school commie, had sneered of the young king that he would be known as Juan Carlos the Brief. Uh, after watching him on TV that night, Carrillo declared, we are all monarchists now. I look around the Western world today and I find it hard to imagine any of our so-called democratic leaders uh, showing the personal courage Juan Carlos demonstrated in 1981 and in the half decade before, when he was the old Spain 
and chose to make himself the new Spain and then had to figure out how to get from one to the other. Pache, Senor Carrillo, Spaniards are not all monarchists now. The king's reign was long, long enough for him to forget who he was and to fall prey to self-indulgence and stupidity. But his exile is a tragedy. And I hope one day he can return home to the land he more than anyone uh, helped build. Escape the quarantine by delving into fantastic fiction chosen and read by Mark Stein himself in Stein's Tales for Our Time. Thrillers, mysteries, science fiction, romance, tales that transcend genre, everything from classics to titles hidden in the upper shelves. Mark Stein Club members can listen to the full catalog of nearly three dozen tales for our time. Hear them all by going to www.steinonline.com tfot. The Mark Stein Club presents The Hundred Years Ago Show. Peace breaks out in a china shop, driving while Democrat, and take him out of the ball game. It's August 1920. A hundred years from today Your world news update The Great War is officially over with the signing of the Treaty of Sèvres in the display room of a decorative china factory on the outskirts of Paris about five miles from Versailles. The treaty ends the Ottoman Empire as a global power. Although the United States refused to sign the treaty because President Wilson objects to the Sultan's continued presence in Constantinople and the cession of Thrace and Smyrna to Greece and the new Yugoslav state refused to sign because they only received a few bits of Turkish territory in Macedonia. And most of the other details remain unknown. Nevertheless, the Treaty of Sèvres brings to a formal end the world war that erupted in August 1914 and inaugurates a new era of global peace. Meanwhile, elsewhere in the newly pacified Europe, in the Polish-Soviet War, the battle for Warsaw is underway as nearly two-thirds of a million men grapple for control of Poland's capital. The superior forces of the Red Army have sophisticated tanks and armoured vehicles captured in the World War, while the Poles have cavalry regiments with a severe shortage of horses and with many of those cavalry officers reduced to fighting on foot. The Reds got to within eight miles of Poland's capital when reports began circulating that General Pilsudski's men have lured the Russians into spreading their lines too thin and have outflanked and surrounded them. The battle is still ongoing, but if these early reports are correct, it would be a significant setback for the march of the Bolsheviks across Europe. <laughs> 
Greece's Prime Minister Eleutherios Venizelos has been wounded in an assassination attempt while visiting France. Entering the railway station at Lyon, the Prime Minister was shot in the left shoulder and left thigh by two royalists, formerly officers of the Greek army. Before they could finish the job, the attackers were seized and beaten by a mob of enraged French onlookers. In Ireland, the Lord Mayor of Cork has been arrested and charged with sedition. Terence McSweeney is accused by the government of hosting a session of Sinn Féin's so-called Irish Republican courts within the precincts of Cork City Hall. He is said to have been court-martialed, convicted and put on a ship to Wales, bound for a prison in England. In the United States, Charles Ponzi has surrendered to authorities at the federal courthouse in Boston. He is charged with defrauding investors of $7 million in what the Massachusetts newspapers are calling, quote, the Ponzi scheme. Down by the Ohio, I found the sweetest little Oh my, oh. I'm going right back there to meet her. And then, oh, picture me when yes, yes. I put my arms around her and kiss her again. Down by the Ohio, she's just a simple little country girl I know. And now you start to raise the hen and the cow. Oh, no. We plan on raising something different now. A little... Oh, my. Oh. Just wait till I get back to Ohio. Don't be in too much of a hurry to get back to Ohio. Jacksontown is famous in the state for its strict policing of speeding motorists. Two constables on motorcycles stopped a car going too fast through town, and one of them, Constable Shipley, told the occupants to accompany him back to the courthouse. The man in the back seat imperiously told the policeman, if you want me, you will find me at the State House in Columbus, and ordered his chauffeur to drive on. He was Democrat presidential nominee and Ohio Governor James M. Cox. Oh my oh, Ohio. The state adjutant general Roy E. Layton has accused Republican officials in Jackson Town of plotting to engineer the governor's humiliation. Only one more state is required to ratify the 19th Amendment to the United States Constitution and thereby permit women to vote. That day has come a little bit closer with the Tennessee Senate's vote of 25 to 4 in favour of the amendment. The measure now moves on to the State House of Representatives. In North Carolina, by contrast, the Senators voted 25 to 23 to postpone consideration of the bill until after the presidential election in November. Hermann von Struve came from a long line of famous Russian astronomers and is renowned for his work on the satellites of planets and the position of stellar objects. Positions closer to hand were of less interest to Professor von Struve, perhaps fatally so. Last year, he accidentally fell off a tram and broke a thigh. While recuperating at a sanatorium, he has had a heart attack and died. Another astronomer has departed for the heavens, Sir Norman Lockyer, the founder of the eminent scientific journal Nature, the discoverer of helium, and a pioneer archaeo-astronomer who dated the construction of Stonehenge to the year 1680 BC. After you get 
what you want, you don't want it. If I gave you the moon, you'd go tired of it soon. The celebrated stage and screen actor James O'Neill is dead. He had been hit by an automobile earlier this summer and was being treated in hospital in Connecticut. He will forever be remembered as the Count of Monte Cristo, which he played on stage and screen for decades. It was a role he had once eagerly sought, but after you get what you want, you don't want it, and Mr O'Neill came to feel that the fame and money Monte Cristo had brought him had destroyed him as an artist. His son is an up-and-coming playwright, Eugene O'Neill. The Cleveland Indians were 3-1 to one up against the New York Yankees when the fifth inning began. Shortstop Ray Chapman was first at bat with one ball and one strike when Carl Mays of the Yankees pitched a fast underhand throw. The phenomenally loud crack of the ball was assumed by the crowd to be the sound of it hitting Mr. Chapman's bat. In fact, it had struck the player on the left side of his head. Ray Chapman fell to his knee bleeding from his ear and was taken from the polo grounds to St. Lawrence Hospital. His pregnant wife Katie, back in Cleveland, was alerted to his injury and immediately left for New York to be with her husband. Arriving at 10 in the morning, she was told that he had died just before 5 a.m. Mrs. Chapman fainted at the news. Her husband is the first professional baseball player to die of injury sustained during the game. He was 29. The long night through, I pray to you, old pal, why don't you answer me? My arms embrace an empty space, the arms that held you tenderly. If you can hear my prayer away up there, old pal, why don't you answer me? And that's the way of the world, August 1920. A hundred years from today. A hundred years from today. Oh, you know what this music means. Mark's Mailbox is on the air. In my Monday column, I said that right now the likeliest outcome of the November election in America is a narrow Trump victory, but with the Republicans losing the Senate. Uh, Charles, a Stein Club member from uh, the Carolinas, or at least one of them, uh, doesn't like where that scenario leads, writes Charles. Trump cannot be trusted with a Democratic Senate with no further need of voters or the Republican Party and a constant threat of impeachment. He will fold on every issue, smirking and holding up his signature on anything that crosses his desk says Charles. Uh, that's an interesting and appalling speculation. The principal reason right now to vote Trump and Republican is to prevent the victory of a dead husk 
of a nominal president who will be under the thumb of a young, ambitious vice president and a Congress committed to completing the utter transformation of these United States. A Republican in the Oval Office and a GOP Senate would prevent that, at least in the sense that it would slow it down. We wouldn't get much. Uh, we'd get a few judges. We'd get maybe another four miles of wall. But the apocalypse would have to wait until President Ocasio-Cortez or President Ilhan Omar in 2024. But is a Trump victory with a GOP Senate defeat enough to stave off that apocalypse? If Trump wakes up on Wednesday, November the 4th, or more likely uh, May 23rd, or whenever the Dems exhaust their legal appeals, uh, with... Uh, he wakes up with a Democrat House and a Democrat Senate. How's he likely to feel? Right now, vulnerable Republican senators such as Arizona's Martha McSally are, quote, distancing themselves from Trump. Uh, that's what my own vulnerable senator did last time round, Kelly Ayotte of New Hampshire. Uh, for those of you who still remember her. And as you might have noticed, she distanced herself right out of the United States Senate. So Trump would wake up on the morning after with a dominant Democrat party and a rump GOP that spent much of the election campaign running away from him and uh, is emerging from the rubble to begin building what they regard as the post-Trump Republican Party. How's he likely to react to that? He would not be a typical lame duck. Uh, and lame duck is not a style that suits Donald J. Trump. Uh, he couldn't get anything through a Republican Congress in 2017, 2018. What of his agenda is Chuck Schumer going to warm up to? The next Kavanaugh? Trump will know the judges are over and the wall is dead. That's it. So he's going to go down as a failed president if measured on his 2016 agenda. Unless, unless... He decides to do as our Carolinian, Carolinian suggests. Uh, Trump is basically an independent president, the equivalent of Angus King in Maine. Um, Trump ran in the GOP primary because that's where the opportunity was. So he has no allegiance to a Republican Party that has in large measure obstructed him as effectively as the Democrats have. Uh, furthermore, who will he be listening to? Right now, Trump's campaign is being run by a man who doesn't believe in Trumpism, in the platform that got Trump elected in 2016. But because he's the president's son-in-law, he can't be fired. What will he and Ivanka be advising daddy on the morning after? Hey, oh, it's tough, yeah, it's tough. Mitch and the gang bought the farm. But there's still lots of things you can get done. Dacker, Dreamers, prison reform. You'll go down as a great reforming president, just not the reforms you were talking about uh, in 2016. And all this hinges on the particular psychology of a most unusual man who has spent three and a half years surrounded by people who have never had any interest in Trumpism 2016. Now, we should consider it from the Democrats' point of view, too. They loathe Trump and they wish to punish those Americans who voted for Trump, especially if they voted for Trump twice. Uh, so their emotional inclination would be to say, whoopee, we got the votes to impeach, convict and remove from office, full steam ahead, crank up the old articles, Adam Schiff. Yeah? 
And what does that accomplish? It makes Mike Pence president. And sure, Pence is a bit of a snoozeroo, but he's not actively repellent in the way Schumer and Pelosi are. And people might like having him as a bland, calming president and give him the Congress in 2022. So are we sure we want to remove Trump? He knows we can do that any time we want. The threat is ever-present. So what about if we instead bend him to our will? What's more important? Getting rid of a lame duck blowhard or flooring it with the wholesale transformation of these United States? Biden with a Democrat Congress will be a disaster, but Trump with a Democrat Congress will either be the disaster our Steinclubber predicts or a big nothing. And that is why, as unlovely as the Republican Party is, they have to be dragged across the finish line this November. We are running out of time. And now, Stein Online presents Mark Stein's Song of the Week. I felt a bit sorry for Joe Biden the other day. He stuck his foot in it by saying, unlike the African-American community, the Latino community is an incredibly diverse community. And you can sort of see what he's getting at. Hispanic is a somewhat amorphous and elastic categorization. Uh, so anyone of any hue or ethnicity can be it or any name. Bill Richardson uh, the big shot Democrat used to be touted as one of America's leading Hispanics, at least until he turned up a wee bit too often on the manifest for Jeffrey Epstein's Lolita Express. Uh, when you're in Florida, you have to remember that a critical sliver of the Hispanic demographic is Cuban. So it's not helpful to have a running mate who's a big Castro shill. So many nuances to grapple with. And Joe Biden is so old, he still thinks diversity is a word with a dictionary definition, uh, whereas instead it's a label indicating preferential status. So naturally, when Joe Biden says African-Americans aren't diverse, they think it means they're getting booted off preferential status and they're steamed about it. It's like when your frequent flyer mega elite premium prestige uh, points are cancelled uh, just as you're trying to uh, pre-board the flight to Chicago. Now, as you know, I'm no fan of diversity, as I've said for years, diversity is where nations go to die. But as Joe Biden reminded us, before it was a status, it was a word with a meaning. And as I learned a lot of words from song lyrics, I found myself thinking, are there any songs that mention diversity? And for a word that is now everywhere and is indeed a profession, Michelle Obama was a diversity consultant and more than a profession, a state religion throughout most of the Western world, uh, diversity has a remarkably thin history uh, in music. Here's the only 20th century standard, as far as I'm aware, to mention diversity. And you have to wait till the last eight bars of the chorus. This is a famous record of it, Quincy Jones's arrangement for Dinah Washington. I'm mad about the boy And I know it's stupid to be mad about the boy 
so ashamed of it But must admit The sleepless nights I've had About the boy Silver screen. He melts my foolish heart in every single scene. Although I'm quite aware that here and there are traces of the cad about the boy. Lord knows. knows I'm not a schoolgirl who's in the flurry of her first affair will it ever cloy this odd diversity of misery and joy I'm feeling quite insane and young again and all because I'm mad about the boy They used that track in Britain for a Levi's jeans commercial in the 1990s and it was so striking that uh, Dinah Washington's three-decade-old record, A Man About the Boy, made it into the pop charts. But here's why we're dusting it off another three decades on. Will it ever cloy this odd diversity of misery and joy? The lone deployment of the word diversity in a pop standard, and it's unmistakably Noel Cad because Noel Cad liked to put words in songs that nobody put in songs. It was the great Tom Lehrer. Uh, who drew my attention to that. It's in my book, Broadway Babies Say Goodnight. We were talking about Coward, and Mr. Lehrer mentioned that fragrant ballad, I'll See You Again, Though My World May Go Awry. And he said to me, that's lovely. Who else would put awry in a song? Well, who else would put Will It Ever Cloy? this odd diversity of misery and joy in a song. Cloy is there because the song's called Mad About the Boy, uh, so he needs oi rhymes, joy, toy, employ, destroy, and eventually Myrna Loy and Corduroy. But uh, diversity isn't there to rhyme. Nolcad just throws it in because it's what he wanted to say. And neither uh, Cole Porter nor Lawrence Hart nor Ira Gershwin had any use for the word. It's cowards. Mad About the Boy is a terrific title for a song. And coward-wise, it's also a marvellous muscular tune, which is why it gets far more instrumental workouts than most coward songs. I mean, who does orchestral arrangements or jazz trio uh, takes on Mad Dogs and Englishmen? Uh, Mad About the Boy actually comes from the same show as Mad Dogs and Englishmen, a West End review with the rather bland title Words and Music, which ran very briefly in 1932. There was nothing wrong with it, but there was also nothing so right with it uh, that a show requires if it's going to turn into a smash hit. But Mad About the Boy was very cleverly staged. The boy in question is a film star, a matinee idol, and so he's adored across all social strata. 
so the song is first sung by a society lady who actually met him at a party before he became a star and found him rather ridiculous. Uh, if you'd met, say, Hugh Grant at a party before four weddings and a funeral. You'll understand that. I shall say no more. The other ladies who are mad about the boy are a schoolgirl, a housemaid, and of all hardened hearts, a tart. We hardly ever hear those lyrics, so here's the housemaid going off to see him on the big screen every Wednesday matinee on her afternoon off, as rendered by the great Joyce Grenfell. Because I'm mad about the boy. I know I'm potty, but I'm mad about the boy. He sets me off on fire with love's desire. In fact, I've got it bad about the boy. When I do the room, I see his face in all the brushes and the brooms. Last week I strained me back and got the sack and had a row with Dad about the boy. I'm finished with no barrows. I'm tired of Richard Dicks. I said Noel Cad uses words that other songwriters don't, so his four characters are all mad about the boy in their particular way. The society lady sings, it may sound stupid, but I'm mad about the boy, because it is stupid of her to be smitten by some airhead actor. The schoolgirl, on the other hand, trills, it's simply scrumptious to be mad about the boy, because at that age it is. The prostitute ruefully admits... It's pretty funny, but I'm mad about the boy. And you glimpse, just for a moment, the sad longing for real romantic love. And as we just heard Joyce Grenfell sing as the Cockney housemaid, I know I'm potty, but I'm mad about the boy. I'm potty. Who else but Noel Coward puts potty in a song of romantic intoxication? Mad about the boy is a hit title, but you've got to be potty to saddle yourself with the rhyme scheme Coward did. Mad about the boy. Sleepless nights I've had about the boy. Traces of the cad about the boy. Had a row with dad about the boy. And this next rhyme, the pioneering gay rocker from the late 70s, uh, Tom Robinson, uh, around about the time he had his big hit, Sing If You're Glad To Be Gay, Sing If You're Happy That Way, Tom Robinson took to singing Mad About The Boy, presumably because the gay songbook wasn't quite as extensive back then. And he always got a laugh on this reference to the poet A.E. Houseman and his most famous work. Walking down the street, his eyes look out at me from people that I meet. I know that, quite sincerely, Houseman really wrote the Shropshire lad about the boy. A.E. Houseman wrote the Shropshire lad about the boy. Who knew? That's uh, Tom Robinson, who I believe uh, 
subsequently married a woman of the opposite sex while insisting he was still gay. I suppose we must address the gayness, although I confess I got a little bored starting back in the 80s when every Noel Cad anthology show you ever went to felt obliged to have a chap stroll on stage and start singing, Mad about the boy, I know it's stupid, but I'm... I'd much rather hear Joyce Grenfell or Dinah Washington do it, but Coward was certainly homosexual, and although having known two of the men closest to him, I don't buy the story uh, that he wrote this song because he was lovesick over Douglas Fairbanks Jr., whom uh, I met, actually, now I think about it. Uh, haven't thought about this in, in years. I met him and actually found uh, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. very boring. Uh, so I can't think Noel Cad would have enjoyed waking up with Dougie as breakfast would have been rather tedious. But for a man of Coward's generation, being homosexual and being a cockney housemaid smitten by a silver screen legend are not unanalogous. The movie star doesn't know you exist, and even if he did, he wouldn't be interested in you. Likewise, if you were homosexual circa 1932, most of the men you're attracted to aren't interested in you because they like women. So in the most important sense, you don't exist for them. And thus, love can often be this odd diversity of misery and joy. For the New York production of Words and Music, Coward thought about adding a fifth character, a man who is mad about the boy, and he wrote an extra chorus which was never sung on stage. Uh, but I've always been tickled by this couplet. <laughs> uh, when I told my wife, she said I've never heard such nonsense in my life. Uh. <laughs> Those were the days. Noel Coward was proud of this song, and as he did with all his best pieces, he made a record of it. It was never released, because on listening back to his performance, Coward realised he was giving a little too much away. It's pretty funny, but I'm mad about the boy. He has a gay appeal that makes me feel There's maybe something sad about the boy. down the street his eyes look out at me from people that i meet i can't believe it's true but when i'm blue in some strange way i'm glad about the boy i'm hardly sentimental love isn't so sublime i have to pay my rental and i can't afford to much time If I couldn't fly A little magic That would finally destroy This dream That pains me and enchains me But I can't Because I'm Mad About the Boy, words and music by Noel Coward, the man who put an odd diversity into a 20th century pop standard. That'll do it for our show. I'll be back this evening with the latest episode in our new tale for our time, my contemporary inversion of The Prisoner of Zender, 
the prisoner of Windsor. Thank you for your many kind comments thereon. Veronica, a Stein clubber from Auckland, New Zealand, says, I love this story and look forward to every new episode. It is very well written and actually, despite the comedy, full of sorrow for all the lost things of this world including lost kingdoms and dispossessed kings. Indeed, Veronica, an odd diversity of comedy and sorrow. Something to think about if you ever run into King Juan Carlos face down in the beer nuts in a bar in Auckland, Veronica. Do join me for Tales for Our Time later. I mentioned that Mad About the Boy lyrics aside is one of Coward's best tunes, so he gets lots of instrumental recordings. Here's a boy I'm mad about, the great life-affirming arranger and composer of my nearly hit, I taught I to a putty tap, the wonderful Billy May. Stay safe, stay free. for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.